I'm former Congressman Gary Franks. And I'm his son, Gary. I'm millennial. We're discussing everything from politics to sports and pop culture. From very different perspectives. We speak frankly. Okay, folks, welcome back. And now you are in the last stages of the campaign. In fact, as you will hear this episode, you are voting, or you may have voted early, but today would be election day. And so essentially, everything I'm going to talk about in this first segment, hopefully you've already done, because obviously it won't make much difference anymore. But it's all very, very important things to, uh, to keep in mind. So, Gary, one of the first things that would be of interest during the last two weeks of the campaign would be your polling. Your polling is very important because now you're doing real quick polls. You're just going in there and usually you're going back to the people you've already spoken to in the past. And you're just looking at the ballot test based on what has happened in the news the day before or two days before or whatever. In my election in 1990, last week of September, we started doing daily tracking, which meant every single day we were tracking how I was doing. The purpose for, the, for that is to find out whether or not a certain comment made by your opponent or a certain newspaper article or radio or TV segment that ran on you, whether or not it actually helped you or whether or not it caused you some pain or potentially cause people to uh, stray away from you. So you needed to know that because that would dictate how you should act to correct whatever may have occurred the day before, two days or three days before. So the tracking is done on a regular basis for the entire month of October. And you're seeing that almost now. Uh, you saw it all during the course of the last three or four weeks on TV. They just had numerous polls doing it. But essentially, you are getting polling information almost every day. And we're going to talk about polls in a little while. Now, you should have gotten your grassroots folks all geared up, and they should have been out in the field working hard for you. So, Dad, what are grassroots? Well, grassroots are the people in the district, let's talk about a congressional race now, that can get out there and talk to more folks because you cannot talk to 700,000 people in your congressional district. So you need other people to be out there. And plus, people have a great deal of respect for their neighbors. And so if you have people in the community who are your ambassadors who are out there cheerleading your cause or correcting a statement that may have been made by your opponent, it goes a long, long way. And typically, it's broken down by whether or not you're a Republican or a Democrat. For example, Gary, if you're a Republican, your natural base of grassroots supporters would be the following organizations. They're also known as special interest groups, but you should have what's known as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in your corner. That's an organization that represents all the major corporations in America. You need to get their blessing and get their support. You should have done this back in the summer, quite frankly, but no doubt you had to do it once you had the nomination. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I had to go down to Washington and give a speech before the board of directors of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce back in, you know, about in September before my election in 1990 because they have to feel comfortable with you and it's very important for you to get them on your side 
because what they do, they're your ambassadors. So they're going to contact all the major companies in your district and tell them that, hey, we like Gary Franks and we think that you and your, your employees should be supporting him because he's going to do da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da upon his getting into office. Now, those special interest groups actually give candidates a questionnaire to fill out in order to get their support. They give you a questionnaire. It's like a test. And you go through it and you say yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Now, it's not a real hard test because whether you're talking about the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or let's let's talk about the American Medical Association, they were ex they were big time supporters of of my race in 1990. So, American Medical Association, basically, the association that represents all the doctors in America. So, you have doctors in your district. So, they have a state chairman of the American Medical Association. So, that state chairman is going to give you a call in August or September and say, "Let's sit down." These are some of the issues that are very important to us. How do you feel about these issues, Congressman Frank or Alderman Franks? How do you feel about these issues? And so you get to know that that organization, you get to know their issues. And if they like your response or if you see that there's some affinity there, they will come out and endorse you. An endorsement plays a role in helping people make their decision because they look at the person who is making the endorsement as having some type of insight and knowledge about the political process that they respect. That could be an individual giving an endorsement, or it could be a newspaper giving an endorsement. And usually for a politician, it's the newspapers that carry the most weight. Now, I say that, but in all of my elections for federal office, and that is, you know, three, four races for for Congress, winning three, losing one, and one race for the United States Senate. Never got an endorsement from most papers. But that is standard. That is standard because, unfortunately, very few Republicans are endorsed by the major newspapers. And yet, what would have to happen, Gary, for every election cycle, you go and meet with the editorial board of the newspapers. And you sit down for an hour, hour and a half, and they usually have a half dozen, if not a dozen reporters in the room. And they all fire questions at you for about an hour, hour and a half. And you know you don't have any notes, or you, you have notepad or whatever, but you have to respond to every one of their questions. Sometimes they're filming it, and sometimes they're just simply recording it. Very few times will they not be, do either. They usually do one of the two. And they grill you for an hour and a half. And I've had times, Gary, when I walk into the New York Times, and I know I'm not going to get the endorsement. I tell them, I say, I'm doing this because it's the thing you're supposed to do. But I know you guys already made your decision already, but, you know, let's go through it. You know, so I would just say right off the bat, because you had to do it. Why would you put yourself in that situation? Because it's better than not showing up for your editorial board meeting. Because if you don't show up, they're definitely going to, you know, rake you over the coals. And so you, you participate because you try to mitigate they're not supporting you. They'll make it on something that's so minor that people who are astute readers will say, oh, okay, I don't agree with Franks on that either, but still, that's not a reason that why not to support him. I'm going to support him. So it plays a role, and it's always around the last two weekends of the campaign that the endorsements start to fly, because then the other campaign that got the endorsement, always someone else did, they can use that endorsement in their TV commercials during the last 10 days of the campaign. 
and they could say endorsed by the so-and-so so-and-so newspaper endorsed by the so-and-so endorsed by all of these papers and that can sway people because they see and they look up and they go man this guy's endorsed by every paper in the district every paper in the state all republicans just play it off as yeah what do you expect you know, a bunch of liberal media people what do you have what the hell i didn't expect to get any in fact, in fact if i got one i would have been thrilled you know so it always happened that way so endorsements are important so your audience would be individuals who are undecided even though there's only 10 12 days before the election but they're still someone undecided or they're not sure if they are emphasizing the right point in their deliberation should they be let's say in this example should they buy what the media has been saying that really this election is a covid election or should they go back to the more traditional way of looking at elections peace and prosperity So the state American Medical Association would make a recommendation to the National American Association, and then you would get their blessings. Usually when that happens, you also get a check that helps your campaign. It's called a political action committee check from a potential association. But it also means that all the doctors in your, in your district are going to be telling their constituents, I mean, their customers, vote for Gary Franks. We think he's fantastic. Those are your ambassadors, part of your grassroots organization. All of this we put together in August and September. Now you also should have what's known as the National Federation of Independent Business. They represent all the small businesses, all the mom and pop organizations. Maybe they have three employees, maybe they have 100, maybe they have 500, but they're small. They're not general electric, they're small organizations, but very important because most of the jobs in, in America are created by the small business people. So you get their endorsement, you go through the same thing, you meet with their state chairman, you meet with their state people, and they put you through a few hula hoops, and bottom line, if they agree with you, you agree with them, bottom line, they endorse you, and then they send it down to Washington, and then you get a check. But they also spread out information to all the small business people in your district that you got to go out there and work hard for Gary Franks. So it continues on and on. Now, I have the support of the National Rifle Association, very controversial organization, but it was very helpful in my campaign, and I strongly believe in the, in, in the second constitutional amendment. So what that meant was once the state chapter saw that I was in support of many of their issues, not all, but many of their issues, far better than my opponent, they gave me their endorsement, and it went down to Washington. They blessed it. We get a check. And not only that, all the people who are gun owners they get a letter saying, you guys got to support Gary Franks and get out there and put a yard sign out there, get out there and write letters to the editor, get out there and show up for his rally, show up, get out there and show up for his fundraisers. That's the grassroots, Gary. Almost every single organization has an association that works in that manner. I don't care if you're talking about undertakers. They have an association in the same drill. You go meet with the, the association for the, the people who who handle the mortuary business, they give you their endorsement, it goes out of Washington, they come to every, almost literally every organization has that. Now that's on the Republican side. All of those companies, all those areas that I just mentioned, and there's far more, but obviously we can't go, not go through every one of them, but all of those organizations usually give and support Republicans. So for the Democrats, is it more of the unions? Yes, excellent, Gary. For the Democrats, it's just a yin and a yang. So if I have the American Medical Association and when I call doctors, they write a check, 
Guess who the Democrats have? Just the opposite. They have the lawyers. All the lawyers, especially the trial lawyers, are with the Democrats. If I call the trial lawyer and ask them for support, they start laughing at me. And my, they'll hang up the phone. Say, you got you. You definitely have the wrong number. You must be so and so. You can't be Gary Franks. You must be Barney Frank. Because you know we hate your guts. And so, bottom line of it is, what is a yin? There's a yang. So, American Medical Association, their opposite would be the trial lawyer. National Rifle Association, their opposite would be the Every Town USA organization. Back in the day, it was handgun owners' rights or the Brady Bill. I can't think of all the you know the things that are tied to that, but. The U.S. Chamber represents all of the major corporations, Gary, every Fortune 500, every Fortune 1000 company. And the union's big organization would be the AFL-CIO. They represent all of the unions. And many of the smaller unions are also affiliated with the AFL-CIO. So whether you're talking about the police union or the fire union, or you're talking about the electricians union, or you're talking about the plumbers union, or you're talking about the teachers union, the National Education Association, whether you're talking about the mail delivery people, whether you're talking about, the, there, it goes on and on and on, all of the union related organizations. There's only one of the unions that typically, I never got a nickel from them, never expected. No, I did. One year when I got the Seawolf Submarine awarded to Connecticut, the electricians and, the, and uh, some, some of the trades did support my candidates, as you make note of that. However, for the most part, it was a joke if you try to get union money if you're a Republican. Now, there was one big exception, and that was the Teamsters. The Teamsters actually did help Republicans, and the reason for that is because of Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa was in charge of the Teamsters, and Jimmy Hoffa was attacked, not physically, but the Democrats went after Jimmy Hoffa, that being the Kennedys. Robert Kennedy and John F. Kennedy went after Jimmy Hoffa. So Jimmy Hoffa decided to tell his union folks, don't support Democrats, support Richard Nixon and the Republicans. And from that point, which was back in the 60s, Teamsters were always somewhat, you can get them to work with you because they didn't have a solid, you know, walk and lockstep type attitude as the other unions would have per the Democrats. So that is what a candidate must understand that this basic principle of how the grassroots work, Gary, and this is how you win elections. If you cannot get all the grassroots organizations really revved up for you in your district, you are going to have a major problem. Because let me tell you, your opponent, if you're a Republican, your opponent, the Democrats, will have every single union working against you. Even your grandma, Gary, had her union working against me. And my, my your grandma was so upset that her money that she was giving to the union every, every month was going to defeat me. And she screamed and yelled and, and tried to get them to not take their money. But unfortunately, the rule was back then that you had no choice. If you were an hourly worker or labor, labor worker or a certain level that's a lower level, or not in management, so to speak, then you were forced to have that deduction taken out of your paycheck. No choice. And if the members of the union voted on supporting anybody other than Gary Franks, you had no choice. They had a vote, your group lost, so they're supporting Bob Jones. And that's what happened all the time. It's very unfair that people's money can be go, can go to in a way in which would not be in their best interest or what they would want to do, but that's the way it works. Now you could say, oh, how about in the corporation side? The way that would work there, Gary, let's say you work for Pepsi-Cola, which we had a lot of people in my district who work for Pepsi-Cola. They would have a choice to contribute money to their political action committee at Pepsi. 
So if they wanted to say to Pepsi, take out $200 a month to give to political candidates of the choice of the, of the political action committee at Pepsi, then you can do that. You, no employee was forced to have their money taken out to give to Pepsi because they didn't do that. You had to specify that you wanted your money to go to help Pepsi give a PAP contribution to candidates who are going to help the Pepsi organization in the future, which means they're going to help them with, with their jobs. And so unions didn't have it that way. Republicans have been fighting that for 20, 30 years. I wish people had choices where they have to select to give that dollar versus having it just grabbed from them. Not to overly beat that drum too loud, loudly, Gary, but the bottom line of it is the grassroots are the people out there who are going to get those yard signs up for you. They're the people out there who are going to get on the phone and call. I had the realtors because I was in real estate. I had the realtors. was one. Of, they were one of my biggest supporters. The AMA was because some of my finance committee people were doctors, were medical doctors. So I had the realtors because I, I was in real estate. And so they, at the time, Gary, before cell phones, they would allow for my office to use their offices, their realtor offices, to make telephone calls. And obviously, if you've ever been in the realtor's office, that's all they have. Back in the day, all I had was a bunch of telephones. And so we were able to make telephone calls and call people and, and get people uh, enthused about the campaign. So they can do a whole lot for you. They can write letters into the editor to, so you can get people saying, hey, I think Gary Fanks is really great. That's basically an organization. It's not something that you, you get people to do that. And... We used to also have our supporters. They would know when I was going to be on a TV show or a radio show, especially a radio talk show. Why? Because I would want them to call in and say, yeah, Gary Franks, you're really great. I want you to win your next election. Oh, thank you, Bob. Bob, who are you? Bob, what are, what are you so concerned with? Well, I'm a gun owner and I believe there's so, so, yeah, so it'll all be somewhat, I won't say orchestrated, but you know, it's what you do in a campaign. You get your people out there and be vocal and be supportive. And that would include calling in on radio shows. That would include writing letters to the editor saying how great Gary Frank says, and that's why I'm voting for him. If the other team doesn't have that type of organization, they're going to suffer a little bit. Because once again, the perception would be, I'm strong and you're weak. And so, and no one wants to vote for a candidate that looks weak, Joe Biden. So even though- That was an unnecessary shot. But the, but then again, <laughs> hey, 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 I'm going to talk about that later. The guy may win. Now, we're going to talk about that later. I think I may make a prediction at the end of the show. We'll see if we have time for that. But I don't want to dwell too long on grassroots, but that's a very important element of your campaign. Quite. All that work should, start, should be done in July, August, and September. That's exactly what my question was going to be. When should it start? Yeah, it's just, uh, as soon as you get the nomination, you should make sure you get that locked in. That's at the very, very latest. And it's a lot of work. But also, Justice. Because you got to meet with a whole lot of organizations. And you got to meet with their board of directors of every one of these organizations. They're gonna they put you through the mill. They ask you a hundred million questions. You got to speak before their group. You got to do it's it's not it's not something that's uh, that's easy. And once you become an incumbent, then it's easier because you already have a track record for voting a certain way. And then they will just say, "Hey, this is Gary Franks' report card. He voted ninety percent with us, guys. He's far better than his opponent. Please support." Him. And you don't have to go and meet with them again after you once you get elected because your record speaks for itself. Does this also happen on the higher level? Every well? level. Every level. Once way. you start running for um, even, Gary, to a certain degree, even to a certain degree when you're running for state rep and state senate, to a certain degree. There's state issues, but still, that's why they have a state chairman of the American Medical Association. They have a state chairman of the National Federation of Independent Businesses. They have a state chapter for 
all of those organizations. And if Pepsi's in your district or if, if Coca-Cola's in your district, they have people that are working, the members of Congress and potential members of Congress for state issues as well. So yes, it happens on all levels, but on the federal level, it's on steroids. And the federal level even happens to the presidential level. It's throughout. And if you're running for governor, yeah, they're very much interested in the same thing, whether or not you're going to be a business-friendly governor or a governor that would be uh, somewhat anti-business or not, not with a business-friendly type attitude. Best example is the state of Connecticut. Connecticut at one time, Gary, did not have a state income tax. Because they didn't have a state income tax, many of the companies in New York City moved to Connecticut. That was back in the 70s. 60s, 70s, and 80s, when I was working in those industries, especially 70s and 80s. And then in 1990, Governor Weicker imposed a state income tax on Connecticut, and companies have been fleeing ever since on the worst decisions ever made in the history of Connecticut, and they're paying the price for it today. So yes, on all levels, you have to be concerned with the, um, the special interest groups and, and on the other side, the labor organizations, because they do... The word is lobby. They do lobby to, to try to get their views and their positions pushed forward and pushed to the front. I was going to go off topic and talk about that's why New Hampshire has so many small businesses because they don't have a state. That is absolutely right. Excellent point, Gary. That is why. That is why people are fleeing California to go to Arizona because of the tax structure in those states. That is why a lot of people flock to Florida because they do not have an estate tax and, and they do not have a personal state tax as well. And in New Hampshire, you're right. You're absolutely right. People uh, have been going there for, the, for a number of reasons, but that would definitely be one of those reasons. The next thing you should be doing in the last two weeks is very important, extremely important. I shouldn't say very important. It's extremely important if you're running for a position such as, mm, let's say, U.S. Senate, Congress, but even more important if you're running for state rep or state Senate, and that is direct mail. Direct mail is important, Gary, because if you're running in a state like Connecticut or any state, if you're on TV and your state has six congresspeople, you're actually running commercials for only one-sixth of the state. So you're spending all of that money just to hit one-sixth of the people. You could argue that. And if you're in a bigger state, let's say you're in Pennsylvania or you're in New York and you're in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, you're spending a ton of money to reach like nine million, you know, you know, a zillion people, so to speak. And yet, and it's very costly to do that in Philadelphia and in New York City. And yet your district only has 700,000 people. So even though you're reaching like 5 million and you only have 700,000 in your district. So it's a waste of money to spend a whole lot of money on TV when you're running for, for Congress in, in many instances. Now, if you're running for U.S. Senate, that's different. You're running statewide, so that's different. But if you're running for the state Senate, even lower position state rep, it's really stupid to spend that kind of money because you're really only getting a touching a tiny part of your district and you're spending money for the entire state or the entire region. Direct mail, that's different. Direct mail was very pivotal in my first election, Gary, in 1990. It's pivotal for a number of reasons. One is, as we talked about earlier in a prior episode, I had my state broken into various categories. I called one part of my state the Gold Coast. Those people were very, very affluent. I called another part of my state the Silver Coast. They were, weren't as affluent as the Gold Coast, but they were well off. Then I had my Blue Collar part. I had my Waterbury City part. I had my Waterbury Suburbs part. And so 
Why is that important? Because if you're going to do a direct mail piece, you're not going to send the Gold Coast people anything that has to do with crime. Why? Because they don't have any crime. So why send a, a mailing piece that says, hey, I'm going to fight crime when I get in office and we're going to lock people up, we're going to do this. They don't care because it does not affect them. But do you want to send that into Waterbury or send that into the blue collar area? Yes, you do. So you target your direct mail piece with a, you know anti-crime type of element to it when you're sending it to those areas. Now, do I send to the wealthiest part of my district, the fact that I'm going to try to get rid of the estate tax, the death tax? Yes, they want to hear that. But would they want to hear that in Waterbury or hear that in the blue collar areas? No, they already know what the estate tax is. So that's why it's so good to be able to get nailing pieces because then you can target your message exactly to the part of your district that would like to know your stance on issues that are important to them because the Gold Coast issues and the blue collar issues and the Waterbury issues are different as far as what's important to them. Direct mail pieces can actually allow you to surgically hit your constituents in a way in which they would say, this is exactly what I'm concerned with. I like this, this is good, I like this guy. And that's what we did. And in some instances, what I had to do in my direct mail piece, because I was, you know, I'm black, they thought automatically I was a Democrat. So I had to make sure that the Republicans, I sent one mailing piece just to Republicans, just only the Republicans all over the district and told them I was a Republican because they, they never saw a black Republican. So I had to make sure they knew that I was a Republican. So then they'll say, oh, Mark, he's a Republican. Let's listen to this guy. And so we had to do that. So direct mail pieces, are great. And plus, if you wanted to do a hit piece on your opponent, it's a great hit because it hits the mailbox, it hits your constituents, and your opponent doesn't even know that it happened. It's just boom, it's just there. It's sat there. It's in someone's living room. They get a call and it's too late for them to respond. Direct mail pieces are not expensive either because they give all political mail priority, number one, for mailing, but also the cost of it is very, very low. And if you go through the political party, it's even lower if you mail it through the Republican National Committee or the Democratic National Committee. Now, they may not want to do that, but you can make them do that. So direct mail, you should have had a lot of it hitting people's homes in the last two weeks of the campaign. Extremely, extremely effective. There are certain places that people should be hitting first. At this point in the campaign, Garrett, you want to go to two groups of people. You want to go to your base because you wanna make sure that they come out and you wanna to go to any area that's close. So those are the two places you wanna go. You do not wanna to go to places that hate your guts. It makes no sense. You are not gonna convert them and you're wasting your time. So whether you're running for, I don't care, state reps, the state Senate, Congress or Senate, you do not wanna do that. So when I was running for the US Senate in 1998, you know, I, I did not, go to certain places at the end of the last week of the campaign. It's silly to do that. It's a waste of time. And you're seeing that also on the, on the national level, which we'll, we'll talk about uh, a little later. So you want to get your, your base out. You want to make sure that in your Republican towns that they come out in droves. You want 90% of the, of the people to come out in your Republican towns. You, you just got to have it. You got to have 90-something percent of your people in the Republican towns coming out. And the way you get them to come out is you go out there and visit them and you go out there and, and talk to them and you go out there and tell them how important it is. 
and and usually Gary, and this is what you're seeing in the national race as well for president. Usually, the people who draw the bigger crowds toward the end of a campaign are the ones who win. Now, that's almost a universal statement. I'm not going to say what's going. Yeah, you know, I'm going to make a prediction later on. But if you look back at Obama's races, he drew tens of thousands of people, and he won. Did McCain draw people? McCain couldn't. He drew people about the same level that, that Biden's drawing people now. If you look at Obama against Romney, he couldn't draw flies. And, and Obama was drawing, you know, they, had, they had to use stadiums of the whole people that Obama was drawing. So you, you saw what was going to happen. The same thing with Trump in his first election against Hillary. He was bringing in tens of thousands of people. And you're seeing that today. You're seeing today that there are just thousands of people, even despite COVID, they're showing up for Trump rallies and Biden's using the excuse of, I don't want many people. Yeah, right. Okay, fine. And so um, usually that's a bellwether. I'll never forget when I was a little kid going to see John F. Kennedy. 50,000 people on the green in Waterbury. 50,000 people waited until four o'clock in the morning to see John F. Kennedy. He won. So it usually tells people who's winning and who's losing. The second thing that usually tells people who's winning, who's losing is the person who's having fun. If someone's screaming at you and looks angry and looks ang mean and looks sad, usually they're losing. You know? <laughs> That's almost a universal attribute of a person who's losing because they're frustrated. And the person who's having fun and is joking and just, just having conversations with you in their so-called speech, whether you're John F. Kennedy or, or Bill Clinton, you're usually winning. Or Barack Obama. If you look at all the tapes of Barack Obama in a lot of part of his campaigns, he was having fun. And Romney was a nervous wreck. And McCain was a, God rest his soul, was a wreck. So that's something that you you want to do. You When you're out there campaigning in the last couple of weeks, your enthusiasm and the fact that you're having fun tells your constituents and people who are undecided that you feel like you're going to win. And once again, it's human nature. People just don't like to be with losers. I don't know what it is. They just don't like losers. And so when people start to see that you have the enthusiasm and you really see yourself winning and everyone sees you winning, everybody wants to join that bandwagon. And, and right now, if you looked at CNN this morning or, or MSNBC this morning, they all were depressed. Now, doesn't mean that, that Trump's going to win, but I'm telling you, there are some depressed puppies today on that show. But we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. You're listening to this on Tuesday. Hopefully you've all voted or will be going out to vote. Following three terms on the city council and three terms in Congress, former Congressman Gary Franks' consulting firm has helped scores of companies, large Fortune 500 firms, small businesses, and even startup companies secure millions of dollars in federal government contracts and international business opportunities. Congressman Franks, a Yale grad, author, Fortune 500 executive, and former visiting professor at Georgetown University, UVA, and Hampton University will use his knowledge, experience, relationships, and strategic plan model to help you reach that next level of success. Schedule your participation in an upcoming webinar to learn just how Congressman Franks can help you. For more information, email gary at garyfranks.org now.
we're getting to the point where the last few days you want people to get out and vote. That's called GOTV. It's called get out the vote. But one thing you want to also make sure you're doing, you want to be able to run as a team. So when I was running for Congress, Gary, I made sure I developed a relationship with all the state Senate candidates who are running with me on the same ticket. I made sure that I had a relationship with the state reps. I made sure that I had a relationship with the Senate candidate was running or if the governor's candidate was running because you want to run as a unit. Anyone, and especially in the presidential election, if you're a Republican and you run away from the top of the ticket, the odds of your winning diminishes tremendously because people can see that and they don't like that. And so in many instances, I'm talking about your base, that being Republicans, you want to be able to utilize the other candidates who are running for office as your ambassadors. So when they're knocking on doors or when they're making telephone calls, they're saying, vote for me. I'm Henry Jackson for state rep and vote for the entire Republican team. That means me. <laughs> so, And when I'm out there campaigning and sometimes they would campaign with me when we going to functions or whatever, I would always introduce them. There's state Senate candidate Bob Smith. You got to vote for Bob Smith. Bob's a great guy. Da, 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 da. There's Margaret Jones. Margaret Jones running for state. You got to do that because they will do that for you when you're not there. They're going to say, hey, I'm Margaret Smith, but I want you to vote for all the Republicans. Congressman Franks. That's what you want them to do because you're running as a team to a certain degree. You're all individuals, but you're running as a team. So you don't want to go do what's known as bullet voting. That is, you go around just saying, hey, vote for me. You, know, you don't do that. You don't do that because it's going to get around that you're not mentioning the other candidates. You're not trying to be helpful to the other candidates. And it really does irritate people. So, and you don't need that because you need to make sure you get every single vote possible. You don't want to lose the vote of the state rep candidate's wife and her fa entire family. No, you want her to feel good and her family to feel good about voting for you, just like they're going to vote for her husband. So that's very important that you, you make sure more than anything else at this point, that you make sure that you are supporting the, the entire ticket. Now, people could say, oh, well, you know, I can't support Trump or I can't support Biden. Well, go ahead. Do it at your own peril. I did that in every one of my races. I didn't care how far down Bush was or how far down Bob Dole was. I supported them. And I said, I want you to vote for Bob Dole. And I made some attack lines against Clinton or made some attack lines against, yeah, Clinton, both instances. You want to be able to get people on board because essentially, whomever gets elected to governor or gets elected, they need the support of the party in order to get their views and their, their ideas and their proposals through Congress. And so that unity part is very important to remember especially during the last few days of the campaign, because you cannot be everywhere, but there are other candidates out there who will be representing smaller areas that can get around pretty well. And plus, a lot of them want to be you in the future anyhow. So they want to be able to help you so that when you move up or move on, you will help them. And so it's all a, that team aspect that you have to kind of realize is very important and you should adhere to it because it will serve you well. Back in one of, one of our earlier episodes, Gary, we talked about having certain people employed. We had a finance director, we had a campaign manager, we had a press secretary. Well, one of the key individuals would be your field director. Very important role because this is part of his job. 
you're a field director while you're out there speaking at Lions clubs and trying to get the endorsement of the pizza association or whatever, your field director should be putting together an organization that would allow for you to know your voters, know who they are, know where they live. And how's that done? It's usually done by a telephone. You would call individuals and say, okay, this would happen sometimes. It would start in August, August or September. You would call a whole bunch of individuals. You may start just with Republicans and independents, and you would ask them, do you plan on voting this year? Yeah. Do you know anything about Congressman Franks? Oh, yeah, I like him. Oh, good. And that person marks down that they like Congressman Franks. And then you would ask them, you plan to vote for him again? Yes, I do. So you note that. And so you go through a whole group of people and then you get some people say, oh, I don't like it. I'm like, okay, put an X next to that person's name. Then you go through all the lists. You go through an entire list. You spend months, July, August, September, doing all of this, right? And then when it comes time, to, right now, the last week of the campaign, especially now that you have early voting, and you make sure, you could tell every campaign gets a list or can get a list of every single voter that has voted as of right now. Every campaign knows every person who voted. It's easy to get. If you're a campaign, you can get it. And so you can also see the names of all the people who haven't voted. So you match those names of people who haven't voted. Then see, let's see, we talked to Bob Jones. He said he's going to vote for Gary Frank. Oh, we got to call him. Uh, Henry Smith, he says he didn't vote either. And these are all Gary Frank's votes. All these people told us they're going to vote for Gary Frank's. So your job is to make sure they get out to vote. G-O-T-V. And you pound those people with calls on all the time, asking if they need rides, and that is done until 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. You are making sure that all the people that you have identified as voting for you actually get out to vote for you. Now, we talked about in the past, in one of our earlier episodes, that you put together a team of people. And we talked about how I, I sat in a room and the, the chairman of the committee started reading off names. And if I recognize the name, I would say, I have, a, I have that name. And then it would be my responsibility to make sure that person would vote. So I may have a list of 100 people and I would grow that list to 200 or 300. Remember we talked about that in the earlier episode? If not, folks, go back to that earlier episode. We did talk about that. And so you make people responsible for their own list of people that they have already spoken to that are supposed to vote for you. Now, it may sound like, how in the world can you do this and make that work? No, it's not that hard. And not if you start early and you get enough people involved. And that's all part of your field director's responsibility and your volunteers and part of your grassroots type of effort. And it's, it's absolutely key. And on a small scale, if you're running for mayor of a small, mid-sized city, sometimes you would know the results of the election before the election. Because if you have all these names up there and all these people said they're going to vote for you and it equals a certain number of voters, you would say, hey, I would have to lose the other folks almost like nine to one in order not to win. And sometimes you can do that type of forecast. But today with technology, it, it can be done in a number of ways. But essentially, once you identify people who are going to vote for you, you want to make sure they vote for you. Now, if you can't identify the people who are going to vote for you, then you have to assume that a Republican will vote for you if you're a Republican. So you're going to call the Republicans. You are not going to call Democrats to get them out to vote. Not a smart thing to do if you're a Republican. Not going to happen unless you pre-screen that person. And they say, no, I'm voting for the Republican. 
then you do call that person. In this election, 90-something percent of the people who are Republicans say, are saying they're going to vote for Trump. So it would behoove the Trump people to make sure that they call and contact every single Republican because nine of the 10 of them will be voting for him. You just have to get them to the voting booth. That's what the big push would be at this stage. Now, we are in the stage of the national campaign where people are looking at polls, but they're not really interpreting the polls the way in which I think they should. Or they are interpreting it, but they don't want to tell you the truth. They don't want to tell you the real facts behind the numbers. The facts behind the numbers, as I would look at them from a Gallup poll that was done on October 31st, it would show that Biden has an eight-point lead, 51 to 43. Now, you remember I bragged about the Gallup folks because they are very good. But this is an election that's so different from, I think, any election we've ever had. And I say that because it is highly likely, highly likely that Trump will lose the popular vote and not lose it by 3 million votes like the Hillary Clinton Trump race. I mean, lose it by a sizable amount of votes. And yet it is possible that Trump could win the electoral college in a landslide. Now, how could that be possible? How could that be possible? Well, let's look at it. The reason why it could be possible is because in states where Trump is losing, he's not losing. He's getting slaughtered. <laughs> so, Let's go through the state-by-state -state poll by Gallup. Now, let's look at the battleground states first. And once again, I think very highly of the Gallup poll. So Arizona. Right now, Arizona, Trump is winning 47-46, one point. But you're going to see a certain theme in this. And the theme would be there's a margin of error of three to four points. So knowing that there's a margin of error of three to four points that the press seems to leave out, you're going to see these battleground states, most of them are tied. Yes, are tied. Could go either way. Arizona, yes, Trump's up 47-46. What should be noted here is that the momentum is on Trump's side in all of these races, in all of these states, I should say. He has been gaining. Will he have enough time? We don't know. But there's a margin of error of three to four points. The state of Florida, Biden is leading 48-47 by one point could go either way. State of Georgia, Biden is leading 48-47. One point could go either way. Iowa, Biden is leading, even though there's been a recent poll that would show that Trump's up by about seven, but let's stick with Gallup. Biden is leading 47-46. One point. <laughs> so Michigan, this is where you have a little bit of a spread. It's beyond the margin of error. It's 50 to 43. Yet Trump is closing the gap, but still is 50 to 43. So I have to put that in Biden's column. North Carolina, Biden is winning 48-47, one point. 
Now, let's keep in mind that all of those things I just said, if it's one point, Biden could be losing by three. One point is, is statistically insignificant. Ohio, 46, 46. Pennsylvania, still within the margin of error, 49, 45, four points within the margin of error with Trump closing the gap because they show a bar of where it was before and where it is now. He's closing the gap very rapidly in Pennsylvania. Wisconsin, I'm going to put that safe in Biden's column because once again, like Michigan, it's 50 to 43. All Trump has to do is when the states that he won before, such as Arizona, he won in 16. Once again, one point that he's up. Florida, he won in 16. Georgia, he won in 16. Iowa, he won in 16. North Carolina, he won in 16. Ohio, he won in 16. Pennsylvania, he won in 16. Just by doing that, he gets well over 300 electoral college votes. Not a landslide, but a very, very solid victory. He could lose Wisconsin, which he's losing by seven points now. He could lose Michigan, where he's losing by seven points now. So having said that, he still becomes president. He could lose, he's still, still president, gets 300, still becomes president. So how does Gallup say that Trump is down by eight points nationally? Now, here's the reason. And they're accurate because you're going to see why. These are the other states. The other states, you're going to see a trend. Where Trump would be winning, he's going to be winning by about between 9 and 15 points. Where Trump is losing, he's going to be losing by 20 to 40 points. <laughs> so, that's why he is not doing well in the overall national poll, because he's getting slaughtered in some states. But who cares? You lose that state by one vote, it's like you can lose it by 40. It doesn't make any difference. So let's look at that. Alabama, Trump is winning by 17. Alaska, Trump is winning by just four. Arkansas, Trump is winning by 33. California, it's so ugly, you don't even want to know the figure. Trump is in the 20s. I'll just, I'll just leave it there. Trump's in the 20s. <laughs> Think of that. With California being the largest state in the union with some 50 electoral college votes, there's a lot of people in the state of California that if you take them out of this poll, Trump is probably winning. Because keep in mind, Hillary only became the popular vote winner when California came in. Well, California, when they come in this, this year, it will be with a ton of votes. That margin is going to be large. Colorado, Biden by nine. Connecticut. Trump's in the 20s. Good news for Trump is Biden's only at 51, but he's still down by 25 points. Hawaii, Biden is up by 33. So you see where Trump is losing, he's losing really badly. While Trump, when he wins, it's not by a lot. Indiana, he's up by seven. That's not a lot. I mean, it's going to be a win, but still, it's not a 33-point win. Kansas, Trump's up by 12. Louisiana, he's up by 23. Okay. Maine, Biden's up by 11. Maryland, it's ugly. Trump's at 31. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so it's, it's not pretty. Massachusetts is probably the worst. Trump is in the mid-20s in Massachusetts. Well, that's kind of like Connecticut. 
And it's been steady. It's been almost like a it's, it's ugly. It's it's really ugly. But think about that. Massachusetts has a lot of people, and only 27, 28% of the people are voting for Trump. So you're gonna have a margin in your poll that would show Trump winning nationally because when Biden wins, he wins by a ton of votes. Now, what's interesting is it's a state that is not in the battleground state category, but it should be, and that's Minnesota. It's 48-43, just a little bit beyond the margin of error. It's five points for Biden, and that is why both Biden and Trump were in Minnesota just a few days ago. Mississippi, 14 points. Montana, Trump only wins Montana by nine points. So, you know, it's a win, so I have to win it by one but it's not by a lot. And this is another one that's extremely close within the margin of error that they don't want to talk about, that being the liberal media. Nevada, Nevada's close. It's within the margin of error and it's closing. It's 48-44, it's closing. So that would be a state that Hillary carried last time. And this time Trump has the prospects of picking it up, just like Minnesota. Hillary carried Minnesota last time and it's one point beyond the margin of error this time. That is why I'm saying it's possible if all things flow a certain way that you could have a blowout in either direction. You could have a blowout in, in, in Biden's direction. But I'm saying that I don't see that happening because I don't see the enthusiasm in the end. This election is also going to be very different because of the large number of people that are voting. We're, we're, We've already broken so many records, you know, each state has, that there could be 150 million people voting in this election, which will be far higher than we've ever had in any election. So with that being the case, it's going to be those folks that we talked about, people who never voted before or people who just registered for the first time that are going to make the difference. And they, as I've said before, do not show up in certain polls because they're not likely voters, because they have not voted in the past. New Hampshire, Biden by 11. New Jersey, Biden by 19. New Mexico, Biden by 14. New York, pretty ugly, pretty ugly. New York's pretty ugly. Okay, Trump gets the 30 in New York State. So those 30-point losses in very large states represents a whole lot of people. And that is why I'm saying that it's very possible that Trump will lose the popular vote, but still could be elected via the Electoral College. South Carolina, Trump's only up by six. Now that's South Carolina. You know, he should be winning by 30, you would think, just like losing in New York by 30. South Dakota, Trump by 11. Tennessee, Trump by 14. Texas, within the margin of error. This is Trump by three right now, 48-45. Utah, Trump by 10. Virginia, Biden by 11. And Washington State, Biden by 21. So when you look at it state by state, which is the way you have to look at it, you, you can see how it's very, very possible that there could be, even though everyone's anticipating a nail biter and this could go on forever as far as the election results, it could actually be a blowout from one perspective and a blowout from another perspective. <laughs> Both in opposite directions. <laughs> Want a blowout as far as the popular vote for Biden and a blowout as far as the electoral college for Trump which would be extremely interesting and also would create a major problem, quite frankly. A problem we've never had before, where the person can lose the popular vote potentially badly 
and still be deemed as the the president of the United States. So it's a it could be an interesting dilemma from that perspective. But I I, I don't believe it's going to be a dilemma as far as declaring the winner on Tuesday or very soon thereafter, whether it's a landslide for Biden or a landslide for for Trump. My prediction would be that I'm not going to predict a landslide for any one of them, but I, I do see Trump losing the popular vote handsomely, but winning the Electoral College vote and returning as president. Now, one of the main reasons why I feel that Donald Trump will win the Electoral College and become a reelected president is because of a question that Gallup has been asking for decades when trying to determine whether or not an incumbent president or a challenger would prevail. And that question would be, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Taking into consideration COVID-19, it's still amazing that President Trump would fare so well with this question. A solid majority of Americans would say, yes, they are better off now than they were four years ago when Obama and Biden were at the helm. 56% of Americans would say this, and that is in a Gallup poll, which as I've stated repeatedly, it's a very reputable organization. In July of 1984, when that question was posed to Americans, that was Ronald Reagan's re-election year. 44% of Americans said yes, they were. Ronald Reagan was re-elected overwhelmingly over Walter Mondale in 1984. In 1992, when this question was posed, George W. H. W. Bush was seeking re-election against Bill Clinton. Only 38% of Americans said they were better off in 1992 than four years prior. George H.W. Bush lost his election. In 2004, the re-election year for George W. Bush, 47% of Americans said they were better off at that time than four years before. George W. Bush won that election. And in 2012, 45% of Americans said that they were better off than they were four years prior, and Barack Obama was reelected. So for Donald Trump to be sitting at 56%, 56% dwarfs all the others that I just mentioned. Under normal times or normal conditions, one would have to scream that he would win by a sizable amount. But these are not normal times. But that would be one of the reasons why I would predict that Donald J. Trump will be reelected president of the United States. So America, get to work. If you haven't voted already, get to the polls today. It's so, so critical. It's so important that each and every one of us would vote. It is our right. It is our duty. And when the election is over, if you haven't voted, then you really have no right to complain. God bless America. And may God help us with our selection. Well, real quick, I want to add one more thing. You know, your, your boy's now the president of basketball operations for the Philadelphia 76ers, so he may not be there long. 
You know, your boy oh, Daryl Moore. Oh, that's the guy from the oh, Houston boy. Rockets. Oh boy, yeah, I've, I already talked about that. Created small kind of ball. Mess. Just today, I'm going to digress for a second. Give me a couple seconds because okay. I today I turned down the TV just to look at a little baseball. I know the World Series just ended, but I turned down the TV and they showed the Los Angeles Dodgers when they last won the World Series, which was in 1988, and they had a picture by the name of uh, Hershauer. And what they were featuring was the guy went 59 innings without allowing a run, which was like seven baseball games. That says two things. One, it says that the manager was smart enough not to take him out of the game. And it also says that back in the day, if you were pitching well, you weren't expected to come out of the game. And today... We're looking at a situation where the Tampa Bay Rays had their ace on the mile, pitching a two-hitter, and they yank him. Oh, my God. So when I think of people who have this new creative way of, of looking at a sport that's been going on for like 100 years and think they have the new magic sauce to make the game better, i.e. the Houston general manager who's down with Philadelphia, guess what? All those other people were not wrong. And you're right, okay? It's not that way. You look at all the banners that the Celtics have. You look at all the banners that the Lakers have. You look at when the Lakers were riding high. They didn't play basketball like you had the Houston Rockets play basketball. That whole strategy should be just totally, totally abandoned and destroyed. Not to mention you don't win championships like that. But the bottom line of it is, it's boring. That's what. That's the main thing. It's boring. And so we don't want to see people launch 63 pointers and watch the ball bounce out to half court when they miss. That's not basketball, okay? It's not basketball. So please do not do that to the 76ers. Guess what? You have an all-star center. Use him. And go check the record. When you have a great center, guess what happens? You usually win championships, okay? That's what the record would show. Yes, we've had this LeBron era. I'm not saying that's not a great era. It's, not, it's something to look at. And we had Michael, but Michael needed a center <laughs> to also win. And you need a center who can play the game in order to win basketball games. You can't have a Houston Rocket team that wait, did not wait, have a real bona fide wait. center and expect to get to the championship. I want to go into my number nine player because it talks about it, but Michael never had a center. Well, Luke he, he Longwood had a person, does not count as a center. And Bill Williams, no, but he had a person Cartwright, who played center. Now, the Houston Rockets, they don't even have a person who looks like a center. You know, <laughs> you have a six-five guy playing center. I mean, it, colleges don't have six-five guys playing center. So you, you need to have a, a person who actually can hold down the position of center. I'm not saying the guy has to score 15 points a game and grab 10 rebounds a game, but he needs to be have a presence. You don't need to have someone overly that overly dominant in center position, but you do need a center. You just can't play with a bunch of guards, a bunch of forwards. It doesn't work. So if you think that you have the right solution okay. to, to, rather, to basketball and that you you that the game is so is so different now, you're absolutely wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And just like getting back to baseball, if you would think that you can win a championship, a World Series on the strength of your bullpen only and playing like five pitchers a game, it's never happened before, folks. And it ain't gonna happen now. So why do you think you woke up one morning and said we're brighter than everybody who's ever played the game of baseball or ever played the game of basketball? And you don't have anything to show for it. That must say that you're wrong. And so that must say to everybody else, don't copy that system. Not to mention that it's boring, but it's also not smart. Going back to the Dodgers in baseball, you look at that highlight of what happened in 1988. 
And you saw baseball play the way I used to see it played when I was growing up, Gary. If a pitcher was pitching well, he completed the game, <laughs> which is not something that was all that revolutionary in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. If you tried to take out, and may God rest his soul, Bob Gibson in the sixth or seventh inning, you may have had a fight on the mound because he was not giving up the ball. He just simply was not giving up the ball. And I would say the same for Don Drysdale. I would say the same for Van Sandy Kovacs. I would say the same for, for Juan Marichal. They were not giving you the ball because they were going to work their way out of that little so-called jam. And guess what? All of those game names I just mentioned, they were like first ballot Hall of Famers. So I guess they got it right. And the managers got it right. And the general managers got it right. So having these specialty players, the, well, guess this is my sixth inning uh, closer. This is my seventh inning guy. This is my, this, no. Guys doing well, keep them in the game. It's very simple. Don't change something that's working. If it's not working, change it. If it is working, don't change it. Pretty basic. That's in everything, folks. That's in everything. Politics included. Well, real quick, I want to add one more thing. You know, you, your boy's now the president of basketball operations for the Philadelphia 76ers. So he may not be there long. You know, your boy, oh, that's Moore, the guy from the oh Houston boy. Rockets. Oh, boy. Yeah, I've, I already talked about that. Bad, that small kind of ball. Mess. Just today, I'm going to digress for a second. Give me a couple of seconds. Because okay. I, today, I turned down the TV just to look at a little baseball. I know the World Series just ended. But I turned down the TV, and they showed the Los Angeles Dodgers when they last won the World Series, which was in 1988. And they had a picture by the name of uh, Hershauer. And what they were featuring was the guy went. 59 innings without allowing a run, which was like seven baseball games. That says two things. One, one, it says that the manager was smart enough not to take him out of the game. And it also says that back in the day, if you were pitching well, you weren't expected to come out of the game. And today, we're looking at a situation where the Tampa Bay Rays had their ace on the mile, pitching a two-hitter, and they yank him. Oh, my God. So when I think of people who have this new creative way of, of looking at a sport that's been going on for like 100 years and think they have the new magic sauce to make the game better, i.e. the Houston general manager who's now with Philadelphia, guess what? All those other people were not wrong. And you're right, okay? It's not that way. You look at all the banners that the Celtics have. You look at all the banners that the Lakers have. You look at when the Lakes were riding high. They didn't play basketball like you had the Houston Rockets play basketball. That whole strategy should be just totally, totally abandoned and destroyed. Not to mention you don't win championships like that, but the bottom line of it is it's boring. That's what that's the main thing. It's boring. And so we don't want to see people launch 63 pointers and watch the ball bounce out to half court when they miss. That's not basketball, okay? It's not basketball. So please do not do that to the 76ers. Guess what? You have an all-star center. Use him. And go, check the record. When you have a great center, guess what happens? You usually win championships, okay? That's what the record would show. Yes, we've had this LeBron era. I'm not saying that's not a great era. It's, not, it's something to look at. And we had Michael. But Michael needed a center <laughs> to also win. And you need a center who can play the game 
in order to win basketball games. You can't have a Houston Rocket team that wait, did not wait, have a real bona fide wait. center and expect to get to the championship. I want to go into my number nine player because it talks about it, but Michael never had a center. Well, Luke he, he Longwood does not count as a center. And Bill Williams no, had a person Cartwright. who played center. Now, the, the Houston Rockets, they don't even have a person who looks like a center. You know, <laughs> you have a six five guy playing center. I mean, it, colleges don't have six five guys playing center. So you, you need to have a, a person who actually can hold down the position of center. I'm not saying the guy has to score fifteen points a game and grab ten rebounds a game, but he needs to be have a presence. You don't need to have someone overly that overly dominant in center position, but you do need a center. You just can't play with a bunch of guards, a bunch of forwards. It doesn't work. So if you think that you have the right solution okay. to, to, to basketball and that you you that the game is so is so different now, you're absolutely wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And just like getting back to baseball, if you would think that you can win a championship, a World Series on the strength of your bullpen only and playing like five pitchers a game, it's never happened before, folks. And it ain't gonna happen now. So why do you think you woke up one morning and said we're brighter than everybody who's ever played the game of baseball or ever played the game of basketball? And you don't have anything to show for it. That must say that you're wrong. And so that must say to everybody else, don't copy that system. Not to mention that it's boring, but it's also not smart. Going back to the Dodgers in baseball, you look at that highlight of what happened in 1988. And you saw baseball play the way I used to see it played when I was growing up, Gary. If a pitcher was pitching well, he completed the game. <laughs> Which is not something that was all that revolutionary in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. If you tried to take out, and may God rest his soul, Bob Gibson in the sixth or seventh inning, you may have had a fight on the mound because he was not giving up the ball. He just simply was not giving up the ball. And I would say the same for Don Drysdale. I would say the same for Van Sandy Kovacs. I would say the same for, for Juan Marichal. They were not giving you the ball because they were going to work their way out of that little so-called jam. And guess what? All of those game names I just mentioned, they were like first ballot Hall of Famers. So I guess they got it right. And the managers got it right. And the general managers got it right. So having these specialty players, that, oh, this is my sixth inning uh, closer. This is my seventh inning guy. This is my, this, no. Guys doing well, keep them in the game. It's very simple. Don't change something that's working. If it's not working, change it. If it is working, don't change it. Pretty basic. That's in everything, folks. That's in everything, politics included. Well, real quick, I want to add one more thing. You know, your, your boy's now the president of basketball operations for the Philadelphia 76ers, so he may not be there long. You know, your boy, oh, Darryl that's Moore, the guy from the oh Houston boy. Rockets. Oh, boy. Yeah, I've, I already talked about that. Bad, that small ball. Just today, I'm going to digress for a second. Give me a couple of seconds. Because okay. I, today, I turned on the TV just to look at a little baseball. I know the World Series just ended. But I turned on the TV, and they showed the Los Angeles Dodgers when they last won the World Series, which was in 1988. And they had a picture by the name of uh, Hershauer. And what they were featuring was the guy went 59 innings without allowing a run, which was like seven baseball games. That says two things. One, it says that the manager was smart enough not to take him out of the game. And it also says that back in the day, if you were pitching well, you weren't expected to come out of the game. And today, we're looking at a situation where the Tampa Bay Rays had their ace on the mile, pitching a two-hitter, and they yank him. Oh, my God. So when I think of 
people who have this new creative way of, of looking at a sport that's been going on for like a hundred years and think they have the new magic sauce to make the game better, i.e. the Houston general manager who's now with Philadelphia. Guess what? All those other people were not wrong. And you're right, okay? It's not that way. You look at all the banners that the Celtics have. You look at all the banners that the Lakers have. You look at when the Lakes were riding high. They didn't play basketball like you had the Houston Rockets play basketball. That whole strategy should be just totally, totally abandoned and destroyed. Not to mention you don't win championships like that, but the bottom line of it is it's boring. That's what that's the main thing. It's boring. And so we don't want to see people launch 63 pointers and watch the ball bounce out to half court when they miss. That's not basketball, okay? It's not basketball. So please do not do that to the 76ers. Guess what? You have an all-star center. Use him. And go, check the record. When you have a great center, guess what happens? You usually win championships, okay? That's what the record would show. Yes, we've had this LeBron era. I'm not saying that's not a great era. It's, not, it's something to look at. And we had Michael. But Michael needed a center <laughs> to also win. And you need a center who can play the game in order to win basketball games. You can't have a Houston Rocket team that did not wait. have a real bona fide wait. center and expect to get to the championship. I want to go into my number nine player because it talks about it, but Michael never had a center. Well, Luke he, he Longman had a does not count as a center. And Bill Wilson, no, had a person Cartwright. who played center. Now, the Houston Rockets, they don't even have a person who looks like a center. You know, <laughs> you have a six-five guy playing center. I mean, it, colleges don't have six-five guys playing center. So you, you need to have a, a person who actually can hold down the position of center. I'm not saying the guy has to score 15 points a game and grab 10 rebounds a game, but he needs to be have a presence. You don't need to have someone overly that overly dominant in center position, but you do need a center. You just can't play with a bunch of guards, a bunch of forwards. It doesn't work. So if you think that you have the right solution okay. to, to, rather, to to basketball and that you you that the game is so is so different now, you're absolutely wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And just like getting back to baseball, if you would think that you can win a championship, a World Series on the strength of your bullpen only and playing like five pitches a game, it's never happened before, folks. And it ain't gonna happen now. So why do you think you woke up one morning and said we're brighter than everybody who's ever played the game of baseball or ever played the game of basketball? And you don't have anything to show for it. That must say that you're wrong. And so that must say to everybody else, don't copy that system. Not to mention that it's boring, but it's also not smart. Going back to the Dodgers in baseball, you look at that highlight of what happened in 1988. And you saw baseball play the way I used to see it played when I was growing up, Gary. If a pitcher was pitching well, he completed the game. <laughs> Which is not something that was all that revolutionary in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. If you tried to take out, and God rest his soul, Bob Gibson in the sixth or seventh inning, you may have had a fight on the mound because he was not giving up the ball. He just simply was not giving up the ball. And I would say the same for Don Drysdale. I would say the same for Van Sandy Kovacs. I would say the same for, for Juan Marichal. They were not giving you the ball because they were going to work their way out of that little so-called jam. And guess what? All of those game names I just mentioned, they were like first ballot Hall of Famers. So I guess they got it right. And the managers got it right. And the general managers got it right. So having these specialty players, the oh, guess this is my sixth inning uh, closer. This is my seventh inning guy. This is my, this, no. Guys doing well, keep them in the game. It's very simple. Don't change something that's working.
Okay. Not working, change it. Because it's working, don't change it. Pretty basic. That's in everything, folks. That's in everything. Politics included. 